in Ireland, they had a tradition where the, the great storytellers traveled, walked for days, but when they had to sleep, they would knock on the door and say, if I tell you a great story, will you allow me to stay the night? Stories allow us to stay with people. The power of storytelling is that other people want to pay that story forward. It is what stays after you're gone, long after the information is finished and whatever have you, like, man, but the story and the value. So it's just a powerful skill. Welcome in to another episode of the Professional Profiles podcast that uncovers the time-tested wisdom for the next generation. Join me, a forward-thinking teen, as I engage in insightful conversations with industry titans, revealing the invaluable ingredients that pave the way to achieving remarkable success. Join us on Profiles today as we welcome Marshall Davis-Jones, the acclaimed poet and communication expert, for an inspiring episode on effective communication and tonal influence. Discover how Marshall's journey and expertise have touched hearts worldwide, and gain valuable insights into the transformative power of words. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to check out Marshall's work. He just released the amazing book, Tonal Influence. I have the link down in the description, and I urge you to check it out. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. No worries, man. Charlie, it's a pleasure. Amazing. So let's just get started. I'm going to jump in and ask to get familiar with who you are. What did your career trajectory look like? Can you walk us through the steps that you took in your career? You know, um, the first step was deciding that I wasn't going to pursue a career at hip-hop. That was my initial goal right out of high school. That's what I wanted to do. And I stumbled into spoken word and slam poetry. And I found it to be a fascinating art form. And it appealed to the competitive nature that I have because it, it is a competition, but it's in the, it requires a different kind of thinking. And I enjoyed the Legos of logic and putting things together. So it fed a lot of things. Then I decided, hey, you know, I think that messaging is a valuable skill. And there are people who are incapable of doing this to the degree that poets are. So maybe there's a way to convert that into speaking, which was the next step. I was like, all right, well, I'll be a speaker. And I got a few gigs doing that and it was all good. The thing that shifted the line of work and brought me here was a friend of mine gets on stage and he performs and he has this very stentorian sound, you know, and I recognized that his voice was unrecognizable, but it was powerful. And as a competitive person, I watched him win his slam. And I said to myself, I need that power. I need to be able to do that with my own voice. And so I asked him, like, what's going on? He said, you know, I'm in acting class. And the first thing he teaches voice, voice is life. And a voracious study began at that point. And initially, it was just for me to have a better voice. I wanted more people to listen to what I had to say. And that was about it. But always enjoying the idea of teaching other people how to bring this forward because it's a skill. Being able to clearly say what you mean is a valuable skill. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're a salesperson, customer service rep, if you're you know a, a people leader, you manage, you run a company. Anywhere where you open your mouth and that's the difference between something getting done or not getting done or some things being clear, or not being clear, it's an important skill. So 
you know, I would teach poetry, still studying this voice, attempting to find my own. I was at a, a school or a school invited me to come up and they had a pretty bad situation with students jumping in front of trains and the high school students overwhelmed, whatever it may be, but they were choosing to opt out of life. And I was supposed to go and speak at, on Monday at a particular school. I get an email Sunday that a student from that school, Saturday night, decided that it was their time to leave. And it's pretty, one, it's, it's very hard to make anything about yourself under those circumstances, right? Which I told you, like, oh, I just want to be able to have more influence when I talk. But it, it, like, what do you say? Like, what do you say to a group of students who just lost a piece of their student body and then talk about anything? So I wound up reading this book called The Ear and the Voice on the Way Up. And it was about listening and, and the power of listening and, and the power of the ear. So going to the school and really, instead of being a public speaker that day or a, a speaking facilitator or a poetry facilitator, it was like, I'm going to be a public listener. And the experience of being in the classroom, having one of the friends of the student who passed in the classroom it shifted the trajectory of what I was doing and why I was doing it. So it's like now, instead of it being blah, 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 more people are going to listen to me because I have a nice voice. What do you need? How do I help people to have that sense of support? Because it could be the difference between life or death. Yeah, short story long. I've had opportunities to work with law enforcement. And I, and I was decided because I wanted to work with people who had dangerous jobs. I would go to bars, break up fights, put myself in dangerous situations where I could be hurt to test my theories to see if like what I'm teaching people about communicating with others that's, is effective in high stakes environments, which made it easy for me to go to corporate and talk to you know CEOs and people, leaders and sales teams. And because I've worked with youth, I also work with a youth organization called Robin that, you know, the social emotional learning for teenagers. And so these three things were all influenced by what began as like, it's all about me. So it's all about we, it's all about us. And now we're here. So how much of communication is about listening? Is there like a percentage maybe, or do you think that it's give and take like both communication through the spoken word and through listening are both important. I mean, you always hear the, or you may have heard one, one time or another, like, oh, you have two ears and one mouth, right? Like, here's the ratio, use it. Um, I'm under the impression that there is some truth to that. But when we think about listening, most of the time it's relegated to the ears, like the ears are a listening part of the body. But that's actually true because the eyes have connections to the auditory system, right? Your skin has a connection to the auditory system. Most of your senses are altered by the sounds that are in your environment. Sense of touch, sense of taste, sense of smell, sense of sight. So listening 
this could arguably be 80 to 90% of what communication is and a very small percentage of what it is that you say. So how do you optimize for that? Probably would be a natural question. Okay, well, what do you do? You know, I think it's of the awareness first of like, well, what is exactly is paying attention or listening? Got to interchange those. You know, listening is also a for the ears, ears are three hundred and sixty degree sense, and they you can hear things behind you and around you. So now you start to this this pie of what it means to pay attention starts to get really interesting, right? When you think about how the senses are moving around the body. And yeah, maybe you may have something to say, but we must pay much greater attention. So how important is emotional intelligence? You mentioned earlier with the youth group that you help work with, that you talk about emotional intelligence. How important is that to work on? It's interesting because, you know, there's this, there's this new term, really, social-emotional learning, which I think is a different kind of use. Because emotional intelligence, it's almost like, well, how do you quantify it, right? Like, how do you say, like, you can take an IQ test and you know that uh, you can do this, 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 and a third. But to answer the question within the context, right, it's like being aware of yourself as you relate to yourself and as you relate to others probably isn't anything more important than that just to live a life. Because if you just steamroll people throughout life and then you turn around and you get to a stage where you have no one around, there's one thing. If you cower from life because you're just deathly afraid all the time, then you don't really get to fully live. And then, so if I were to look at it like this, you're in a car and you're driving on the highway. Being aware of you as the driver is very important for the safety of the car. Being aware of what other drivers are doing in relationship to being on the path, which is the road, is also important for not only their safety, but also the safety of your car. So what I look at is if you look at emotional intelligence, emotional learning, any form of intelligence really, it's paramount so that you can get to where you are going safely and others can get to where they are going safely. And yeah, that's how I would measure that out. So I'd love to shift to your book, right? You wrote Tonal Influence. Could you first help define what tonal influence means and what you mean by that title? Absolutely. So tonal influence is allowing someone to say what they mean and mean how they said it. So a lot of times people will say something and they go, oh, why did I say that? Um, or they may have said something, but it doesn't come across or it comes out in a way that they didn't intend. The influence comes from influer, which means inflow. And influence is your ability to inflow, meaning if I say words, I put you as a listener in a state where you are willing for those words to inflow to you and accept them. And if you don't accept them, you're not put in a psychological position where you feel like you have to aggressively reject them. Right. And what I mean by that is I disagree, but the way that you come 
and the disagree gets me to a point where I'm so defensive. Now I have to lash out and respond. It's like, oh, you know, we can peacefully and respectfully debate. But we can talk about two different sides. But the goal is you want to make sure that you have the capacity to be mindful of not only your state of being, your homeostasis, your car, but also the cars of the other people on the road. So when you have tonal influence, your affect and affective presence is able to keep that balance where, you know, you know where to draw boundaries, you know where you to see other people's boundaries, respect those boundaries, and execute in conversation or instruction or anything else, direction, and do that in a way that is effective. So I will zoom out on tone for a second. Most of the time when people think about an influence, we're like, oh, well, it's like these are eloquent words. But we don't spend a lot of time with words. Rather, we spend a lot of time with tone and understanding the little subtleties and the colors of what's going on between us mathematically speaking, a long time before we get to words. Like if we were to take the time of early stage development and put it on like this quantum map, it's like you have a master class, a PhD in like, oh, good, bad, angry, sad, happy. And then the words come and you try to explain yourself, your needs. So giving people access to how their tone is reaching deep into the primordial parts of humanity, into the deeper parts of us so that our words can get through so are there any traits that you see in successful people that are able to listen that they do better are they just more receptive to others information or are they just more focused on not talking and listening yeah that's fair right that's because there is a there is a difference when you you're listening to someone and they're just silent it's like well what are they doing they can be doing anything they could be thinking about their emails or their phone or you know something they have to do it right they're not talking and trying to appear like they're listening mm. when in reality active listening is you're 100 percent focused on the other person and what they're saying right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there was a study with some judges where they were asked to keep open arm posture versus closed arm posture and for lie detection uh, apparently, you're a better lie detector with open with your arms open than you are with your arms closed. But also, bind behavior. You cross your arms, you have more bias resistance than when your arms are open. And great listening or information gathering, for that matter, does require a sense of openness where your body is primed to take in information. When you close off the body... The body takes that as a cue, sort of like like a shield. So it's really hard, you know, if you're having a disagreement and somebody crossed their arms, you can kind of, you can tell based on that body posture that you maybe lose the discussion right now. So keeping an open body posture, one, can increase your capacity to detect because your body is not trying to protect you. So that's one thing that would be important. 
being able to control one's own emotional responses and kind of detect, okay, you know, your my breathing is getting a little off here. You know, you want to make sure that your body isn't doing anything else to alarm you. Because all that information, like once your breath starts to go and you have very little control over that, at least your body is prioritizing like, hey, what's wrong? Charlie, what's going on here? <laughs> Why are we breathing this fast? What's this feeling in my stomach? What's going on here? Should we even be here anymore? Should we run in the other direction? Is this person a threat? These, you know, headquarters starts making a few demands of you. It is impossible for you to pay very close attention. So the, so I would say that, you know, you want to be mindful of how you carry, you know, are you, are, are your hands being used defensively to protect you or are they open to receive to your point? So in your TED talk, you obviously had a large audience and I'm sure you've done speaking engagements for large audiences. How does tonal influence apply to public speaking? And are there any strategies that you've used to be able to speak publicly and not fear maybe failure or making a mistake? Well, I'll tell you, Ben, there is not a single time where you stand in front of a group of people and there isn't the knee jerk. Do they all have pitchforks and do they all want to get me? Right. Just naturally speaking. You're one person and you're facing an army of people. Now they're sitting down and might, some of them may be on their phones or not. They're all looking at you and they're all hoping that it's going to be, it's going to be well worth their attention, right? Like you have a new crowd, new large group, never heard of you to try that, to try to abate that knee jerk sense of like, okay, there could be fear there would be unwise. It's like, accept it. It's like, okay, it's adrenaline. It's coming. Because people are starting to judge you from the way you walk out. They are sizing up how comfortable or uncomfortable you feel. And if you're okay with the idea that, you know what, right now, this is a little scary. Okay. It's better than like, oh man, I shouldn't be afraid right now. And then you start to attack yourself. So the first thing that I would say is, you know, avoid attacking yourself. If you have a sensation where there's a sense of discomfort, lean into it. It's okay. It's a part of it. It's a part of you putting yourself out there and, and facing the challenge and the risk of being completely disliked after you open your mouth. See, that's a big risk. I might say the wrong thing and get a lot of people upset at me. And it's, there's more of them than me. That's a genuine fear. Second thing is you know speaking to a large group the beauty of today's technology is that you don't have to do what they used to have to do to talk to a large group where you have to fill the room like you don't have to do all of that kind of stuff you have the capability of amplifying a very conversational tone through some microphone now yeah you talk to a group of people and you might have to have a big sense of energy you do a stadium or something like that which that's different with 80,000 people, you kind of want to widen your scope. So that would be the third thing. When people say, oh, you're being narrow-minded, I've always found those kind of terms interesting because how can you put that in the body? Is it possible? And whereas we saw, right? If I narrow my focus, 
And there's sometimes it's, an, it's important to do that too, right? But if I'm addressing a very large crowd, then I want to make sure that as much of their embodiment is in my view as possible. And that way they will be able to hear that I'm speaking to all of them and not speaking to some tiny dot on the wall. Now that's, again, I'll, I'll stress this. Very, very large crowds that would be required. If the crowd is big, but small enough where you can zero in on someone, Bill Clinton was really good at this. He could walk up to someone and make the rest of the world disappear. And if you do that, then there's a sense of the whole crowd is now just watching you have this interaction with this one person. And there's something about that as well that's, that's valuable. But only if you're choosing to do it and you're doing it from a place where you know that's what you are doing. And you aren't afraid of that limited space. So it is, it is, again, it's never about good or bad or this is the thing to do all the time. But it is about when and where. And if you are aware of what you are doing, when and where, and you are able to do that with competence, then no matter what you're doing, your tone will give the message that the person knows what they're doing and people will at least listen. So while we're talking about this speaking, um, you use storytelling a lot in your presentation. And I just wanted to know what role storytelling plays in presenting and engaging your audience and then kind of zooming into everyday conversations. Can we use storytelling to engage other people in our conversations and have more meaningful conversations with others stories i like the word story because it's it reminds me of the word storage and where you store things or a store but a story your stories are stories of value stories are like currency right it's it is the implied value of this thing, a dollar, has a store of value. There's an implied value of what happens if I hand a dollar to you or a hundred dollars or some Bitcoin or whatever. Stories are the store of value or the currency of decisions, just like money is also a store of value of decisions. And if you think about stories as a form of currency, then you think about what stories have had the most value over time that has been that has kept our group alive, that has kept our culture alive, that has kept our customs alive. When we think about currencies, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, you know, here's a currency, you exchange this currency for this currency. The value of this currency is so strong that when you go here, it's valuable. You go there, it's valuable. So we collect these stories, we collect these incidents of things that have happened to us or things that have happened with us, things that have happened for us. And we share them with others as a way of transferring value without having to get into the particulars. Like there are people who understand money and finance in a very, very, very elevated way where they understand interest, real estate, and well, the, all the things that go along with moving funds around trusts. And then there's just a dollar, right? And we know that it's a form of exchange. 
the more we are able to tap into the root of exchange, the value of exchange, the closer we get to the center of what makes one human interact with another, what makes one human pass an interaction to another person. You don't necessarily need to know everything about finance and know the value. And so storytelling is at the root of transferring knowledge, transferring values, transferring customs. And then you can get into particulars and you can go into the great history and the grand this and the grand that of how this became this, how that became that. But the power of a very well-told story, the power of being able to hand a dollar over to receive a dollar over, you get to the core of just that basic transactional connection. So yeah, I just really enjoyed the opportunity to to utilize it as a skill because stories stories are the things that protect us. They are the boundaries of our traditions. You know, it is also <laughs> it can also go in another way because our stories also can divide us, right? Like the stories we tell ourselves, stories we tell each other. But as you can see, they're, they're very powerful. They're powerful. Instructions and information, eh, cool. <laughs> like, you know, you like, you read The Economist and you're like, uh, you know, who cares? Some people do. <laughs> Some people do. And it's a very small group. But yeah, you know, so you the the... Yeah, man. It's the Legos and the ideas of what it is that can transfer an idea in a, in a creative way. And to go back to your analogy of trading a dollar for a dollar, when you give someone a story, it's not like you're just giving them your dollar. They're just getting a dollar kind of for free. Like stories are a way that we can in- exchange valuable insights and information that we may not receive it from our perspective. And it's just, it's really interesting to know that stories are such a powerful thing and tool that we can use to share our ideas with others and there's no cost associated absolutely you know i was on the line at the moth storytelling it's like a slam but for stories whereas slam poetry you know you can everybody's kind of competing with short form pieces like maybe three minutes four minutes five minutes long the moth storytelling slamming might be you know 15 minute stories but it was a curious thing. I'm on the line, and I remember someone in front of me says to me, in Ireland, they had a tradition where the, the great storytellers, they would go door, you know, travel and walk for days. But when they had to sleep, they would knock on the door and say, if I tell you a great story, will you allow me to stay the night? And to the point of the dollar, right? If I tell you a great story, will you allow me to stay the night? Airbnb is a company that you pay your currency and you give, tell people a little bit about yourself and they will allow you to stay the night. The value of story is the same. Stories, stories allow us to stay with people or we give people the opportunity to decide. If I tell you a good enough story, will you let me stay with you? Will you let the memory of me live with you to wherever it is that you're going to go? And, and in so doing, will you carry me with you? The power of storytelling is that other people want to, you know, pay that story forward. And, you know, when you have a, a reputation, 
right? Because that's really the story that others tell of you. Like, you know, that reputation can be good or bad, right? But it's still the power of story. It is what stays after you're gone. Long after, like, you know, the information is finished and whatever have you. Like, man, but the story and the value. You know, I remember this one time that somebody said this to me. And this might be a good time to pull this out because this will be relevant to someone else right now. So it's just a powerful skill to have to be able to put things together. Being able to demonstrate a certain sense of emotional control is very valuable. Back to currency. If I hand, if I want you to be responsible for something that's valuable to me, would I want to give that over to someone who sounds like they don't really have, you know, much control over their impulses or like just really, really hot headed and like, you know, or you know, the, or would you want to hand that over to somebody who gives the sonic cue that they have a bit more pull? That's trust. Trust is what I hand you that I don't have to watch you do. I don't need to trust someone I'm watching. I need to trust someone I'm not watching. And so when we speak, we speak for our presence, but we speak for our absence as well. And I think that there's anything that, you know, I'd want to leave like on the table today, it would be that. Because most of the time we think about our influence as the presence in this moment right now, I'm influencing you. But that's only part of it. The way that you speak speaks for you when you are not around. So you speak for our presence and we speak for our absence. And there's a value in that. Because when you're not in the room and people speak of you, they say, oh, I got Charlie. Good head on his shoulders. I think that this he might be, you know, he, he does this thing that he's working on. You might want to talk to him. The people start to carry you. They take you with them. And do that willfully and do it in a way that is generative for you. Yeah. So when I hear your voice, it doesn't sound like you're forcing anything. It actually sounds more natural. Do you think that our our natural voice is something that is kind of more calm and deeper? I'm just fascinated by that. It's a part of nature, right? So therefore it would be natural. Now, I think I think maybe what you're exploring is is our baseline is the baseline meant to be a certain kind of tone a certain kind of way and you know i think to that i would say yes there is a baseline of of indicating that you are calm and safe and by safe i don't mean like a doormat but that you have a certain sense of a sense of safety that when you open your mouth, it says, okay, Charlie is comfortable where he is in his position. And Charlie demonstrates that he's willing to listen. Charlie demonstrates that he's willing to, you know, object if he needs to. But he can do that with maintaining the dignity of the people he speaks to, right? Because when you respect your own boundaries, like respect them, you respect other people's boundaries. If you feel the need to um, de- over-defend your boundaries out of fear or out of maybe people have done things in the past that make you feel defensive about it, you're more likely to be very either withdrawn or over-aggressive to protect that sense, right? 
And then you start overstepping boundaries, you know, kind of becoming that which happened to you. So there is a baseline. And that baseline begins with boundaries. And when you are clear about that for yourself, that you know where you are, it's like I'm in my car. You know the boundaries between your car and the next car. <laughs> like, you know that if you drive too close, you're going to crash, right? So, you know, you're in your lane, I'm in my lane, you're in front of me, you're, and you're just going to where you have to go. And then there is a respect that comes with that. So, yes, there is a baseline that we can all pursue that would be different for all of us, and it is up to us to find it. So, lastly, with all the amazing advice you've blessed us with today, if you were to get a billboard that millions could see, what would be the one piece of advice that you would share to the world? Millions of people could see this billboard. One piece of advice to share with the world that millions of people could see the billboard. I would say hold your space. Hold your space. Could you dive into that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, people say, oh, you know, holding space for others is a thing, right? Like holding space. And it's not a metaphor. If I have a certain sense of my own boundaries in space and I'm able to stand in it, holding your space is the most valuable thing that you can do for yourself because it's the only way that you can hold space for others. If you're unable to hold your own space and you're not holding space for others, you're, they're, they're like, what's the word when somebody, um, they're like squatters in your space, right? Because you're, you know, they yeah, you don't want them there, but you're just, like, they're violating your circumference but if you hold your space every single human being's dignity is is attached to that if there's consequences to your actions there's consequences to your actions there's a book called spy the lie get the truth and it talked about dignity and getting people to confess to some really heinous crimes required the interrogator to maintain the humanity of the person that was talking about what they did. And being able to hold your own space allows for you to not be overwhelmed by whatever's going on from other people. It's like the world, it can be wild sometimes. And people could have done some very crazy things, but you know what? I'm able to hold my space here. I'm able to hold my, in me holding my space, this person feels comfortable enough to tell me their secrets, enough to tell me their secrets that will get them in jail for a very long time. Because, man, there was this one gentleman, he said he confessed to some crimes that were very, I mean, you know, at the bottom of the barrel of humanity. And when he got his sentencing, he looked back at the the interrogator, if you will, and he thanked him. And that's when he knew that there was value in maintaining, helping others to maintain their dignity at all costs. And so hold your space. You maintain your own dignity, your own sense of that then only then can you do that for others. So that would be my line of advice. So for all of us to coexist peacefully, you're saying that we need to stay in our lane, respect others, and carry ourselves with dignity? Absolutely. Perfect. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. 
Charlie, same. Take care, my friend. Thank you for listening. If you learned something, be sure to share this with a friend that could use it. My name's Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.